So I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today Asaf. He's the founder of Homemade, which is the biggest hybrid letting solution in the UK. Um, his background, interestingly, sort of a Bain & Co. management consultant via INSEAD MBA. And now he's really, really in the founder lifestyle. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So Asaf, which moment are we going back to? Well, we're going back um, nearly five years, where mid-2018, um, there was a realization that a new hire, a key hire in the company, um, that we hired to drive the business development, uh, we can no longer keep that person in the company. And that was linked to the fact that at this specific moment, we were burning a lot of cash, the level of commercial activity hasn't picked up accordingly, and just realizing that we, we can no longer carry on. And I had to go and terminate. And that was the first termination we had in the company where I had to terminate someone's employment. But the most difficult moment was that it was nothing to do with this individual. It was us who placed this person in the wrong position. So wow. she applied for a position in, in, in sales and operations. We thought she was great. And, um, you know, without understanding the impact of that, we, we thought that she can do a business development instead. Super smart, hardworking, great culture fit, but was not equipped to do the right, the, the specific position. And the realization was that three months later is that we're going to have to terminate. And again, it's it's our fault as a company. It's our fault. It's my fault as, as, as a leader in the business. And yet I'm not the one paying the price. And it was a very difficult moment for for me personally and, and, and to my colleagues as well to, to go in and, and call it out. But at the same time, um, there was a clear realization that we have to do that as soon as possible to save the company, to save the, the, the mission to be embarked on. So you say that to save the company. So kind of, she, she was three months in, she wasn't right for the role. Why was it so necessary to make a decision to, to save the company? So we were in pre-seed stage that day, at that point, raised a few hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, start picking up the commercial activity. So one month you have three thousand pounds of revenue. The next month six thousand pounds of revenue. But by hiring key hire, that means that you know you you burn over ten thousand pounds per month, right? When you took look at the full uh, employment cost. And the realization was at that point is that one we're running out of money, right? So we have to extend our runway as a company. We have to to stop the cash burn and and so on. And also that there's no way to scale this specific function, meaning that for that specific moment with that specific individual, we're not going to see any revenue in the next six months. Mm. So it was a lose-lose situation where if we keep the person, we basically gonna run out of money as a company. And if we, you know, even if they succeed and, and win business, by the time we actually start seeing revenue, it's gonna to be too late for us as a company. So it was a bit of an emergency button a situation there. So was it the case that almost no one could have been right for that role at that stage? Could be. It could, it could be we're not ready for that. Uh, I think one of the challenges is, you know, for us the company is that we uh, were a bit top heavy in the beginning. So we had too many managers and not enough um, team members were doing. And and the, you know the more senior managers are obviously more expensive. And I think that on, on, on that front, we were definitely not ready for the function, right, for, for to hiring a, a head of business development at that stage. We were not good enough for the enterprise level. Um, so if, if you think of our business where we win, whether it's private landlords, that's our B2C, or large landlords with uh, more than 1,000 properties, each property fund where we're the largest 
at the moment, currently, at the time, we were not ready to go and win this long-term acquisition of an enterprise-level client. Mm. Um, so it's just very likely that at that stage, our product market fit in terms of, of being able to deliver on, 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 on our promise, really, was not enterprise-ready. It was B2C-ready, it was not or consumer-ready, it wasn't enterprise-ready. Well, okay, and what, what's, what do you think took you down this path of of bringing this person in then? Like, you know, with retrospect, we weren't necessarily ready for it. In the moment, what led to this? So we were interviewing her for a different role and had really good chemistry in terms of, of believing in the same values. And she was very smart, and she still is very smart, hardworking, very much aligned to what we want to do. When, when we realized that we actually don't need to hire for the original role, we were very keen to find something else that works. And I think that um, tendency to try and allow an exception in order to facilitate or, or enable something different is a huge mistake. So the way I now think of hiring is you want to make sure that someone is, is a very balanced one when it comes to the strategy side, the execution side, the capabilities or resources, and, and the values. So... I think it was an element of uh, immaturity as a, as a founder, as a company CEO, when it comes to recruiting very capable people, but placing them in the wrong function. Um, and, and that's very, sorry to say that, but that very Gen Z approach of anyone can do anything was just not correct and still is not correct, right? You want to make sure that the right people are placed in the place that allows them to succeed. And for me at the time, it was, um, ah, they're such a great fit and I can see them doing anything that I can place them from product to marketing. And that's uh, clearly not the right thing to do. Mm. Is, is there also an element of just, it's super, you were super excited about them as a person and you Definitely. wanted to find a home for them. And it was like, it's, ex- it's also super flattering in an early stage of business when you've got someone who's that good, who wants yeah. to be part of it. The bias I, I had at the time is, I knew we needed someone for this role or, or that at some point we need someone for this role. And we felt that we were very fortunate that the timing was right to that we had this really strong candidate and perhaps we can do this job that we're looking to hire later. Maybe we can pull it forward. The decision-making was flawed when it came to we compromise on, on the skill set. We compromise even in the process. We were hiring for process X, made decision to hire, but we never really recruited for the right role. Mm. So when it comes to the assessment process, we already biased that this person fits without assessing the fit for the specific role not to the original role. And you said you also found yourself with like lots of managers and not enough team members. How, yeah. did, how did that come to play out? Uh, I, I think that starts from a bias of a, coming from, let's call it a corporate world or, or working with corporates in strategy consulting where I felt that there's a need. So you need someone technical to run the product. You need someone technical to run the sales. And there's a lot of operations on our side. Um, I felt that there's a, that by having someone who can be sales, but for the enterprise level, we would need someone with sufficient, you know, let's call it a strong report or gravitas to, to, to lead these in, uh, initiatives to allow me to focus on other things. And the reality is for a company that age, it's one of those things you want to do yourself. You want to be the one, if, as a founder, and again, I, I don't come from background of sales, but as a founder, you are constantly in a sales position. You sell to investors, you sell to customers, you sell to team members. And if you don't end up doing it yourself in early days, 
bring a senior manager is probably a bit too early. Mm-hmm. Um, so we found that in, ourselves in a place where there, this lack of focus around when to go and after what segment was just, uh, we were trying basically to, you know, to drive before we could even walk there. It's interesting. I find that with my coaching clients, a lot of people do that, that kind of stepping away from sales quite early. It's like, if, if it's quite seductive, that idea of finding that salesperson that's going to solve all your problems. And often then you bring in a senior salesperson three to six months, sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes longer. Yeah. That person doesn't work out and the founder steps back in and goes, oh, I, this is what I should have been doing. It's the same thing. It's, it's, it's sales, it's marketing. It's, it's, you know, you think that you're going to have this magic solution and you're going to have someone and you're not going to cope with that at all. The reality is that I don't see myself stepping away from, from sales and operations in full at any stage the company. And I think it's also important for, for even though the leaders that run the sales and operations to know that you're detail-oriented enough to be a part of that and be able to give them leverage as well as while they give you leverage. Because the risk of, of hiring, especially in the enterprise level that we're coping with, the risk of um, selling the wrong product or the wrong service, meaning you either don't price it right or you don't set up for success, you only have a finite number of clients in this, in this space. So getting it wrong could really harm your brand, could really harm your, your economics, could really harm your company growth. So you want to be on top of that as well. So I, I, I find I agree with you. I think that you, you need to stay relatively close. And even when you want to go out, you, you know, they keep pulling you back in, but you also want to be there in terms of the discussions. Okay, so if we're going into this moment again. You've got this, this person who's, sounds like they, they believe in what you're doing. You believe in them as a person. And it's come to this moment that it's this realization that it's kind of them or your business. Yeah. How, how do you approach that type of conversation? That, that was a very tough moment. It was, it was, it was, again, it wasn't about me. It was about them, but it, it's, uh, it's challenging because the, the, it's also breaches your perception of justice, hmm. right? You, you, the company is in the wrong. I'm in the wrong as in, again, I made the decision to hire, which was not the right one yet again, the next day I will have a job and she won't. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, if I wouldn't do that, uh, first the company would be gone but also i would also breach my uh, you know responsibilities to the rest of the team mm. so and, and that's very much around you you know the responsibility you have to to the full group or, or your, your shareholders your team members your customers um, that you have to focus on so the way to approach it uh, it was the, my first time actually firing someone i spoke to my sister who was the hr director and, and she gave me some advice i spoke to friends of mine who've been through that a couple of them and they shared some advice, and eventually, just you know, you book the meeting, you start talking. It's honest discussion about what works well, what doesn't work, what could work well, and so on. Um, and it was it came as a surprise, of course, to that to, to her, um, and she felt there's, there's, that we should provide more time. I, I, I just had a very honest discussion and just showed the numbers to to her. Um, she realized that she understand that uh, we support her in the process. I'm trying to make it a little less bad for, for us as a company and us as a, as a group. Um, I explained to the team members why we had to do that. And that was a, that built a lot of trust with them because they, they, they appreciated the time, the, the honesty and directness about it. 
And we also had a, I know it sounds a bit of a cliche, but we had a bit of a debrief after that, like how we recruit, how do we cope with certain things, what do we need to do differently to, so we don't find ourselves in the same position a year later. Um, mm. So we, we learned a lot from it. But that said, again, it, it remains one of the most difficult moments where, again, you have to make a tough choice. And and the second one is the element that uh, it, it affects others more than you. So it's not just about you. It's about them. Okay. But then again, uh, I think that any leader in any organization, that's, that's the job. If you want to make these tough decisions, then then don't be in that position. right? Because the position is all about how do you protect the company? How do you protect the shareholders? How do you protect the customers? How do you protect the team members rather than one individual here and there? And that means many times making decisions are against your personal interest. And I think that not making this decision would have been a very selfish act of me mm. not wanting to, you know, feel in a certain way or do certain things, but at the same time betraying the trust that I've been provided with uh, by shareholders and, and, and team members. Hmm. I, I think it's fair to say that it's, if it ever becomes easy, that conversation, you just stop managing people immediately. Exactly. If you ever find yourself that you don't feel sad about it, then something's wrong with your EQ and, and perception of uh, from justice to emotions and, and other people's suffering or feelings. I think even when it comes to more straightforward situations, when you have team members who don't perform or that you may discontinue a function, it has to remain a tough and difficult point. It also reminds you about the importance of hiring the right people. It's an importance, um, you know, you should want not to be in that position at all by doing things much earlier, either by not hiring person X or by not designing a function Y, but it should never be easy. So you said that you did a debrief and you've learned lessons from doing it. What are, what are some of the key lessons that you've you've taken away from this and sub, I imagine subsequent yeah. mishires? Like I don't, I don't imagine you've had a hundred percent success rate on hiring since. No. Or if you do, you are unique. <laughs> what, what, what in progress? Um, <laughs> so one one of the key changes we made was change end to end the recruitment process. So for example, what we do is when we have a key hires, so mid-level and above, we would run as part of the process, we would run a, a, a workshop that we call the first 90 days, which is all about the individual designs, the first 90 days deliverables, and we engage in discussion that is, is the closest possible to actually working together. So the, the purpose of the workshop, just as this one example, is for the, you know, the candidate to understand the breadth and depth for the role, not to state, you know, 100,000 feet or, you know, 100 feet. Um, secondly, for you to have the chance of working together and understanding how the dynamic works. And lastly, to turn it into an actual work plan that you can then go and measure 30 days in, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days in. That's one example. Um, second one is we stopped recruiting for technical roles, sales, marketing, product, uh, R&D, uh, finance, with people without the relevant background. Okay, I think these specific roles... Unlike others, unlike sales and operation, we're okay with hiring just for potential, you know, complete blank, you know, set of experiences for some roles. Um, for the ones that are very technical, we need to see the experience. We need to talk to people that worked on in the past to understand how they perceive their experience, because sometimes people misjudge their actual capabilities. And so that was another one. Um, and a third one was around when do you expect team members to be fully operational. I've dialed down to a place, or dialed up really, 
to a place where I expect to see certain indicators much quicker. All right, so to, to an extreme that by the end of day one, you have some hypothesis. You know, after two weeks, you have a second one. After a few weeks, you, you, you have a pretty good gut feeling slash understanding if this person is the right person or not. And if they're not, you don't want to, to stretch it. It's not good for anyone. I'm a big believer in that. I think that a lot of people make hires and it's kind of, like, oh, I'll give someone three months and then we'll have some conversations. But I always say it as the interview process continues through the first month, maybe three, and it's actually people start at maybe 90% confidence and either they start trending up or they start trending yeah. down. It's about catching it quite quickly which way it's going. Some, some people are just really good interviewees. Right, and and you want to make sure that when you do that, you actually check their actual performance and and fit with your model, right? So uh, uh, another example of one of the things that we changed as a result from the debrief, you know, we end up with a a different process of assessing performance as well, right? So which is stepping away from what people say and seeing more what they actually do, right? Mm. And how do you actually measure? So from a scenario based case studies to uh, measuring the way that they think. So, we, for example, when we run the process now, every single person who interviews needs to decide whether they hire and champion. Champion, you, I must have this person. And what you want to do is you want to have you make sure that you have 100% I would hire. And at least one person must say, I must have this person. Because if you mm. end up having a, not everybody agrees on hiring, better not take the risk. And on the champion side, you don't want to have, I'll hire, but no one really you know, passionate about having this person join. Mm. So, and, 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 and this is linked not just to would you hire, would you champion, it's linked also to the balance between their competence and the fit that they have with the company values. You can't just hire someone who's really good fit, but they can't do the job. Mm. Okay? Then you're basically hiring, a, you know, a friend or, or, or someone who's, who's lovely to be around, but just not going to be doing their job well. That's really nice. So, how many people are in these processes normally? So how many people have to choose hire or champion? Just rarely, I would say, reach a consensus upfront, right? So meaning you have some cases where everybody's hire, everybody's champion. That's nearly fail-proof uh, stats on our side that historically when we had that specific situation, they were really great team members later on. Um, you have the most common one is, is, you know, nobody wants to hire. Okay, because if it, it's just basically you no, know, there's there's no there's no even room for debrief on that platform. I would say about 50, 60 percent of cases you have some sort of a mix, and then you, what you don't want to do is you don't want to persuade someone to hire, because then you're kind of measuring your debate skills rather than the actual perception, but you want to understand the why. So we'll at least when we come out of this debrief, we understand. Uh, the alignment around what is we want from the role, what we want from people, and so on. Okay. Um, there were perhaps two cases in the past where we reconsidered, and every time we have done that, it, we regretted it. Some some of the most decisions made were around uh, making a you know, making an exception, or we don't feel it's right, but we really need someone here right here right now. That that never worked. Or we had someone we had in one case someone who you know we said no to after one person in the whole process everybody will hire a champion one person said no to hire we decided to decline the candidacy that person sent a you know a long email about fight that they want to fight for it they, they believe in it we said we're going to set up another round both people would say hire a champion it was it was a mistake 
So it's kind of about respecting the process to a certain extent. And again, there's always, we're pragmatic people as well. You know, there are business needs, there's a, you know, our people function has their targets that they're trying to get to. So there's always a balance. Um, but if you really want to progress, you need to raise the bar all the time. And that means that you actually have to respect the process more and more. Um, hmm. And when it comes to if you need to hire a lot of people, then you just need to start earlier or use more channels or different conversions or just, you know, recruit faster. Um, but it, not just not to load the bar. Okay, so so in this process, is it? Have you, would you normally have like two people, three people, four people? How many people are having to vote on average? Um, senior to mid to senior, uh, five people involved. So we'd have uh, one interview with the people function, a second one with the people function with the head of people. Um, we would then do another round with three people interviewing, and then we do a workshop that that final workshop that involves uh, at least three members of the team. Um, mm. After each round, we would have an element of debrief or feedback to make sure that if this person should... It is very time-consuming as well for us. And we want to make sure we don't mislead anyone in the process, or we would like to stop that relatively early on if it's not the right fit for us. So today, how what would you say your sort of hiring success rate is? And of the people you hire, what people are still in the business after three months? So it, it, it's, I would say, over 75% or 80%. I mean, we have... Um, a mix of all range of roles. We have per role, it really is dependent, right? So for example, our entry-level role would have a low rate. Mm. Um, it depends either on, on the, the level of past experience. We Most of them, it's their first job, so you just don't know how they'll cope in a, in a work environment. Uh, it could be the pay or, or success or performance or just even the, uh, the dynamic that they may take as a group, right? When we have large cohorts starting together. On the more senior uh, level, we have very high retention rate, between 90 and 95% as a rule of thumb. Wow. And it sounds like you're really committed to this now as a as a process. Uh, we are. We are. Uh, I think in every now and then there's, there's a challenge to it, right? Like, again, whether it's time allocation or, or you know, doubts around whether it's the right thing. And it's, it's a fair thing to doubt. I, I think that right now it's about so we just made a senior hire offer uh, this week it was accepted that was a very long process that was you know two weeks together and um, mm. but the level of confidence we have and it's also relevant when you go to salary negotiation if there are any it goes to the level of assurance i need to see an element of commitment because in startups sometimes you make an offer someone accepts and day one comes and then a week before they they find another job or you know have a change of heart or anything like that and you want to make sure as a company that your level of risk taking to is, is this person going to be there three months later, whether they don't start or they're not good and so on, is mitigated, especially when it comes to key hires. Uh, when it comes to entry level, then there's an element of beneficial risk taking that we're okay with. right? So mm-hmm. we would limit how much time we would allocate for the entry level position. Do you feel that some of this commitment is rooted in this experience from 2018? I, I, I think it's multiple scars that, that we, you know, no one likes to have the wrong team member on board or no one likes to let go of a good team member, right? I think that one specifically was more memorable, more um, painful for, for everyone involved is because this person was really good. And yet we just placed her in an impossible position of in doing the wrong job. You know, if I were to be placed in doing marketing or, or tech development, I wouldn't be able to do that because that's not how my brain is wired. That's where my experience is. So expecting me to be someone I'm not is just not going to work. No matter how 
greater the fit it may one person may have with the company values or believing in the mission. I can want as much as I want to hope and wish and so on. When it comes to me developing a marketing plan or, or product roadmap, that's not what I do, right? Mm. I think it's really resonating for me here is this idea that one mistake I think a lot of early stage businesses make is they, they get seduced by that hire who comes from a big name business. And it's like, oh, someone from X wants to work here. Isn't that exciting? And actually often... One piece of advice I was given very early on is like, don't hire people from big businesses, <laughs> the startups, because it's just very, very different. But I think this is a secondary issue, which I haven't heard talked about as much, but I really like, is this idea that you can get seduced almost by someone who is a culture fit, they believe in your vision, they've got all the raw materials. And because they're such a great person, they go, I'll do whatever it takes. But you're, you're, you're both setting yourselves up for failure because in certain roles, whatever it takes does actually require that technical yeah. experience that's going to take them. You don't have a year for them to learn it, two years for them to learn it. You need yeah. them to be able to do it within a month. I, I think they're absolutely true. And I think there are like two or three different aspects here. Number one, when you have someone from a large corporate, the question is, are they just good in the framework that they come from? What you want is people who can design the framework and refine the framework and redesign the framework rather than being someone who really works in the Johnson Johnson framework or the Bain Company framework. Hmm. Um, what I mean by that is sometimes people are really good in using the tools or the resources they have or they rely on the brand that that company has and they, they don't really know how to do it from scratch when there's no brand and they, or the systems are not equipped and so on. There's an element when you recruit where you really want the other side to succeed because you remember when you were interviewing at some point, and you really want to succeed and you also really want to hire. So you have a built-in bias of ignoring um, red flags or ignoring yellow flags there when it comes to, to recruitment. And what um, this experience and others taught me is the price of getting it wrong, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the importance of actually listening to the gut feeling, right? Like in the past, it would be, it would be very much around, show me the data or let's, let's try and look for zero or one um, approval that this person is right for us or not. And here you have to go more cases. So you have to go with your gut feeling. And if you want to move fast, by definition, that level of data or, or, or intel that you have or, or knowledge is more limited. Um, I think when, when we were recruiting for summer 2022, where we had huge increase in activity and, and we expect to have the same one this year, we, we had to go and recruit over 25 people in, in, in a matter of weeks. Right? And... I found that if you try to take yourself out of the equation, you end up not having the right people on board. And if you don't even go and sample it every now and then, the rest of the team may also misinterpret that uh, lack of attendance or, or lack of presence as, to, as an indication that they can lower the bar. And you want to make sure that you don't do that. Okay, so let's, let's, let's run this forward from to today then. So 2018, there was just a few of you, quite management-heavy, just just getting going and that kind of 3,000 a month, 6,000 a month revenue stage. Where are you guys today? So first of all, to where we are, we are the largest uh, hybrid letting solution in the UK. We um, have a B2C and a B2B arm, so we managed to build that enterprise level. On the B2C side, we have thousands of private landlords, including the running of our own payment platform. So we're unique in the sense that all our rents runs through 
a dedicated bank account system that we developed. And on the B2B side, we are the largest multifamily or built to rent, as it's called in the UK, operators who work with every major fund with more than a thousand units in the country. So um, bigger than public companies like Savers and Foxtons, uh, significantly bigger than them. We are now in a place where um, we have a significant pipeline of both large B2B clients and private landlords for the next three quarters. And we need to recruit the right team members on board. But the focus for us or, or the emphasis for us is how do you keep on automating so you need fewer and fewer people as you scale? How do you keep improving the, you move from 75% gross margin to higher numbers, 80, 85, and so on? And how do you make sure that um, you don't let go of the, the economics of a business, which is, again, trying to replace traditional agencies? And having been through this today, what has anything struck you? Many. <laughs> <laughs> At every stage, there was, and, and I understand why investors, for example, really like second-time founders, right? I understand the, 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 there's a learning curve that once you go for a stage, you don't go back to that stage. So, you know, you're kind of a destined to go for that again and again. So I, I think for, in early days, for me, it was very much around the importance of speed. So how if you go in, in, in speed in terms of, of a, a customer acquisition, next to, make, to next, make it to the next level, make it to the next level, and the next level, the challenges you'll have are going to be different. So you have to be comfortable with that good enough model, good enough economics to move to the next level. At the later stage, it was very much around uh, how to scale the op model. Um, then it was automation and product. Then it was funding. So very, very different um, challenges. I think where we are now, we're in a market where the economics of being a startup as a whole and a prop tech enabled is very, very different. The emphasis is very much around proving the level of, of profit you, your model can generate. Uh, we're past that place of, of winning, you know, showing that we have a really strong product market fit. We're past the point where we're showing a really good unit economics. We're now in a place where we need to show that we really stand out as we scale with unit economics. Um, and that the model is also um, adaptable and, and, and valid in other locations, other countries. And that will be the challenge in 2023. How do you scale it? And how do you scale it in multiple markets, across multiple mm. markets? Well, I said that was really, really interesting. And it touched on topic very close to my heart, like how you, how you really nail the people side of it. But so thank you for sharing your experiences. Thank you for having me. As you heard today, coaching opens up a whole range of insights and areas to explore. If you have a potential moment to revisit on the podcast, or just want to learn more about coaching, book in for a 30-minute chat with me at peer-effect.com.